So, uh, yeah, we're continuing our series through John's Gospel called Jesus at the Center. And um, through this series, we've been referencing the reason why John wrote this gospel. And it was simply this, to reveal the truth of who Jesus was and is so that we might believe and have life. That's John's heart for you this morning, that you might believe and have life, life in all its fullness. And so we're going to be looking at the uh, well-known story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, and uh, we're just going to get stuck straight into it, if that's okay. So uh, let's read from verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Um, If you remember last week, we saw how John the Baptist's disciples got a little bit disgruntled, the fact that Jesus and his disciples were now on their turf. You know, how are they going to react to that? And, and Rob very helpful, helpfully led us through their own responses. And if you remember from last time, what was John the Baptist's gracious response? There wasn't an ounce of competition there, wasn't it? It was less of me, more of you. Yeah, I must decrease so that he must increase. John knew that his mission was to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And yet, with all this kind of tension and competition, the Pharisees saw a little little opportunity to cause a bit of infighting. So the Pharisees were kind of stirring up trouble, really. You know, maybe if they could uh, get a little bit of infighting, then this whole baptism thing might just die out. You know, remember the Pharisees thought their ceremonial laws were good enough. They didn't need to be baptized. So they were trying to stir up competition. Jesus wasn't having any of it. He just calmly left the situation, left the area, and headed back to Galilee. Verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. In fact, Jacob's well is still there. You can go and see it to this day. It's actually uh, in a town now in what's, what's now West Bank, the West Bank, And it's now covered by, obviously, as you can imagine, these kind of sacred areas are covered by huge churches. But you can go and see Jacob's well. It's still incredibly deep and uh, probably not as deep as it was in Jesus' time. But, of course, this is quite a statement, the fact that Jesus is passing through Samaria. The Jews, most Jews, would have taken that hashed route. They would have crossed the Jordan and bypassed Samaria at all costs. Because as Vlada pointed out the other Sunday, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They did not mix. This went back hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, right back to when Israel was a divided kingdom. You had the North Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And the Northern Kingdom, if you know your kind of Old Testament history, was taken, was invaded by the Assyrians. And as Vlada pointed out, when a conquering superpower 
invaded your country, what they did was they removed all the influential people out of the situation and put in all their people. So it totally, their culture and their customs and their religions were totally absorbed, assimilated into the Assyrian culture. That's the way they stopped uprisings. That's the way they quelled any hint of rebellion. And so the 10 tribes, this northern kingdom, basically got absorbed into the culture, the customs, and the religion, the idolatry of the Assyrian people. They intermarried. They started worshiping their other gods. And basically, in the Jews' eyes, were totally contaminated and compromised. Again, if you know your history, so that all happened around about 727 BC. Uh, Around 500 BC, we then got the Babylonians who finally captured the southern kingdom. It was a bit different from them. They were taken into captivity, but a remnant was allowed to return back to Jerusalem. If you remember when we went through the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem with this remnant. And the people there were, there was a bunch of people who were opposing them, Sanballat and others. They were the Samaritans. So there was animosity even from that point onwards. A hatred, a hostility. As I said, the Jews just thought the Samaritans were compromised, contaminated. They wanted nothing to do with them. In fact, when the Pharisees wanted to insult Jesus, one of the worst things they could think of was to call him a Samaritan. That is how much they hated Samaritans. And yet Jesus broke through all this cultural, racial, social resentment and hatred. Says he had to pass through Samaria. You know, he didn't actually. He could have gone like every other upright Jew would have done. But he had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because again, as we looked a few weeks ago, Jesus was working to a heavenly timetable. God had a plan. He had an encounter for Jesus with this Samaritan woman at the well. He was on a heavenly timetable, an encounter that would not just transform her life, but as we'll see, transform the lives of her her whole village. Let's carry on reading. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That was a polite way of saying it. Jesus answered her, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you will have asked him and he will have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying you have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah, he who is called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's a pretty amazing encounter. If you remember the last encounter Jesus had with an individual was with Nicodemus. Complete contrast. A high up, respected, religious teacher. The sort of person you'd expect the Messiah to converse with, to have an encounter with. Someone influential, someone respectable, a Jew like him. But I think it's really interesting to see that John now shows us with this encounter, only John includes this encounter in his gospel, that Jesus is also interested in the five times divorced, now currently living with her partner, Samaritan woman. Any one of those things in the minds of an upright Jew would immediately have discounted her from having any, any dealings with would have immediately discounted her. You know, we're told that the, when the disciples come back, they're gobsmacked that Jesus is even talking to a woman. Just wasn't done in those days. It just wasn't okay, particularly if you're a rabbi. Jesus was seen as a rabbi, as a teacher. Rabbis weren't even allowed to greet women in public. It was just a no-go. Again, Jesus was crossing over these, these cultural divides. We've already seen that she's a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans don't mix. But on top of that, she has been in and out of one relationship after another. It's kind of normal in our culture. It wasn't then. You know, in a culture that stoned adulterers, she would have been a social outcast. She would have been seen as deeply offensive in so, on so many levels. Yet Jesus met with her. I think it's really interesting because John is showing us with Nicodemus that good, upright, respectable people still aren't good enough to be accepted by God in their own right. Jesus said to him, you know, you, you respectable religious teacher, actually need to be born again. You need to be renewed. All your righteousness counts for nothing. 
But at the same time, with this encounter, he's showing us that sinful, shunned, social outcasts are not bad enough to be rejected by God. It's a powerful statement. You know, there's no one too great not to need saving. But on the flip side, there's also no one too bad that can't be saved. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And Jesus met with her. Tired, thirsty, hungry. Send his disciples off. Go and get some food. It's just another reminder, isn't it, that Jesus, although he was fully God, was also fully human. He got tired. He got hungry. He just walked like 40-odd miles to get to that place. He can empathize. He knows what we go through. He was fully human. He was tired. He had every excuse to ignore and sideline this woman. And yet he didn't. And I find that really challenging. I find just that one fact massively challenging. Because when I'm tired, the last thing I feel like doing is engaging, well, with anyone, really. Claire was here, so my wife would, would probably say, you know, I just, the last thing, I just, I'm peopled out. I find it very challenging. Jesus met with her. And it's even harder when it's with people who aren't like you. Because you have to make more of an effort, people who are different to you. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. Whatever his levels of tiredness, he still pushes through those racial and cultural and social divides and steps into this woman's life. Really challenging. And that, that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. You know, he comes to us just as we are this morning. By his spirit, he comes to you just as you are, with all our mess, with all our mistakes and failures, with all our questions. You know, it's okay to have questions. He comes to us as we are. And I just love the simplicity of how he starts off this encounter. You know, there he is. The answer, as we've been saying, Jesus is the answer. He could have come in so easily as a know-it-all. You're a sinner. You need to repent and follow me. Job done. Move on. Where's my drink? He didn't. He was so compassionate and so patient and so gentle. That opening line, can I have a drink? You know, I think that's powerful on two levels. Firstly, here he is, son of God through which the entire earth was created, this H2O in the well he created, and yet he asked the woman, can I have a drink? He's valuing her. He's saying, you know, you've got something that, that can serve me. There's a valuing there. It's also a massive statement culturally, because again, Jews would ha wouldn't even consider drinking from the same source as a Samaritan. He didn't have a container. He would have had to drink from her container. What a powerful statement. Give me a drink. I want to share your water. I, I suppose the closest thing we have is, the, is that warp segregation that African Americans faced in the U.S. in the 50s and 60s. You know, separate drinking fountains. It's the same sort of thing. And yet Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not just prepared to talk to you, a Samaritan and a woman, and I know a sin, sinner, but I also am prepared to drink with you. 
breaking down cultural and social divides. And she's just gobsmacked, isn't she? Why are you, a Jew, even talking to me? You hate us. What's going on? You know, there's something really powerful about simply acknowledging someone. Someone who's used to being sidelined and shunned, simply acknowledging someone. There's a bunch of people going from this congregation to uh, help give clothes and food to the homeless on December the 22nd. To actually acknowledge people who are so used to being sidelined and shunned. It's powerful. You know, and asking questions is a great way to show that we value them and that we're actually interested in the person and not just our agenda, that we're not just coming in like a know-it-all. Acknowledging and asking questions, powerful way just to disarm people, to show them we love them. But for now, as you read through the story, you see that the Samaritan woman's defenses are still up. You know, when she says, you know, if only you knew, when Jesus says, if only you knew who was asking you for a drink, she has a little dig, doesn't she? She goes, do you think you're greater than Jacob? You know, kind of, who do you think you are? You know, he's the one who built this well. <laughs> Jesus could have said, well, I built the world, but he didn't. He simply goes on, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again, yet the penny still hasn't dropped. She says, great, give me this water. She's still thinking materialistically, saying, give me this water, then I won't have to keep coming back to this dusty well. It's the same thing that Nicodemus faced. You know, how on earth can I be born again? You know, how can I get, get back into my mum? It's ugh, horrible to think about. But it's just, you know, they, they're still thinking materialistically, physically. And Jesus often used physical illustrations to explain a spiritual truth. John's gospel is full of this, as we'll see as we go through. So with Nicodemus, he was talking about being born again. With this woman, he's talking about living water. She's still got her defenses up, so Jesus does a bit of digging himself to get under her defenses and prophetically basically tells her her life story. Five husbands. The guy you're with at the moment isn't your husband. You know, prophecy and, and words of knowledge are powerful ways of getting past people's defenses. And I think we need to pray for more of them as God reveals to us what is really the issue at heart. You know, when you're talking to people in your workplace, at the school gates, when we go out on the high street, ask God for revelation to speak really to the heart of this person, to get past the their defenses they've put up. But please notice that with this prophecy that Jesus was basically telling her life story, there wasn't a hint of judging. There wasn't a hint of condemnation. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is simply longing for her to find the life that really satisfies, to find life that truly satisfies. And you know what? We are so like that woman on, on so many levels. In fact, everyone is. Everyone is. The world is looking for something that will satisfy, something that will bring true fulfillment, to give us a sense of, of identity and significance. And, you know, maybe she had looked at it for it in one relationship after another. 
Maybe she'd been constantly let down. Maybe it was a history of, of being used and abused. Remember, in those days, it was only the husbands who could divorce. But whatever it was, she was hungry for something real. And I suppose the question for us is, is where are we looking for fulfillment? Where are you looking for contentment and significance and acceptance? Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. He's using Jeremiah language. When Israel turned their backs on God, Jeremiah prophesied this, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. They turn their back on this source of living water, this spring of living water. They'd stopped drawing on God and started looking to other things to satisfy them. Today, people are still looking for satisfaction in anything and everything, aren't they? You know, our music is full of it. I, I spent 17 years in the music industry, and the number of records that, that I recorded that were full of lyrics that were just uh, of emptiness, either try this relationship or that relationship and, and, you know, you might find satisfaction, or the flip side, being totally honest, that I haven't got any satisfaction from this relationship. I'm hurting, I'm in pain. People have often said it's actually easier to write a sad song than a happy song. Kind of, it's, it's easier to draw from the emotions. I mean, Mick Jagger, for example, I can't get no satisfaction. It's a classic, isn't it? He didn't just pen a song for his generation. He penned it for subsequent generations afterwards, looking for material things, looking for satisfaction in relationships, in, in power, to be seen to be successful, to be accepted. Our songs are full of it. I think one of the clearest ones, well, actually, it's about five years old now, but Lily Allen wrote a song called The Fear. And it's just a great critique of, of the emptiness of our society. Some of the lyrics are this, I'm a weapon of mass consumption. It's not my fault, it's how I'm programmed to function. Goes on, I'm not a saint, but I'm not a sinner. Now everything's cool just as long as I'm getting thinner. You know, it's just this whole pressure to be accepted, to fit into this mold. Then you'll find satisfaction in this relationship or in this appearance or in this role. The chorus goes, I don't know what's right and what's real anymore. I don't know how I'm meant to feel anymore. When do you think it will all become clear? Because I'm being taken over by the fear. And in an interview about this song, she said, look, I'm very aware that I'm part of this culture, but it's not something that I feel particularly comfortable with or that I believe is very healthy. Really honest. Really honest. And I wonder if our woman at the well would identify with those same longings for something real, something of substance as she went from one relationship to another. The thing is, Jesus knows we thirst for such things. He knows we thirst for something real, something lasting for significance, for acceptance. And he simply wants to direct our thirst to the right place, to the right place. Even this morning, I believe God wants to redirect some of our 
focuses, where we're drawing acceptance and satisfaction from. He's wanting to redirect our thirst to him, the source of living water. You know, his message was so simple, wasn't it? Whoever continues to drink from this material water, or you could read into this, that, or anything that the world has to offer, just, just you're going to be thirsty again. It's not going to satisfy. It might satisfy for the short term, but you're just going to be thirsty again. It won't last. Only the water that I give can truly satisfy. What was Jesus talking about? What's this living water? Well, quite simply, he was talking about the Holy Spirit, his life-giving spirit, that a time was coming where, as Joel prophesied, he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, on men, on women, on Jews, on Samaritans, on the respectable and on the social outcast. On all flesh, he would be pouring out his spirit, only the Holy Spirit indwelling in us can bring that satisfaction, can bring that transformation. He becomes in us this inner spring, welling up, as Jesus said, to eternal life. He becomes this overflowing, life-giving, life-changing water. She's getting uncomfortable as Jesus gets a little closer to her heart. Just told her her life history. So she quickly changes subjects, you know. Hey, let's have a theological debate about where we should worship. You know, whoop, quick sidestep, change of scene, getting a bit uncomfortable here. You know, we Samaritans worship on this mountain. They were literally just under, under the mountain. You Jews worship in the temple. What do you think about that? Jesus stays right on track. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter where you worship. Why? Because of what I've been talking about. Because you will have this life-giving spirit of God within you, this well of living water. Location won't matter. So we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was building a new temple made up of living stones. Men, women, Jews, Samaritans, Young and old, built together to be a dwelling place for God by his spirit. People who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Stays right on track. See, the Jews had the truth. They, they, you know, Jesus, as Jesus said, they worship what they know. God had revealed himself to the Jews for centuries, from Abraham through to Moses, through to the prophets, God had revealed himself to them. They knew the truth. But they didn't have the spirit of God. And this is what Jesus kept on time and time again bringing them up on. He says, look, you follow the letter of the law. You kind of dot all the I's and cross all the T's. You pay me lip service. You honor me with your lips. But your hearts are far from me. They had the truth, but they didn't worship in spirit. Their hearts were far from him. The Samaritans, on the other hand, didn't have the truth. You know, as I said, they had been assimilated into the whole Assyrian culture. As Jesus said, you worship what you don't know. So what was the answer? 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, this life-giving water. Because true worship is always a response to a revelation of God. That's what true worship is. It's a response to a, the true revelation of God. And that is the Holy Spirit's job. It's to reveal Jesus to us. To enable us to worship him, not just with our lips, oh, because we're told to, but with our hearts. This indwelling, life-giving water wells up and enables us to worship God in spirit and in truth. Those are the type of worshipers God is looking for. Again, it becomes clear in John 7, 37 to 39, Jesus stands up. It's just the last day of the greatest feast. Loads of people. He stands up and says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. That happened at Pentecost, of course. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Wonderful fulfillment of that prophecy. It's the Holy Spirit, this life-giving water, transforms us from the inside out. Truly satisfying, truly wonderful. And, and as Jesus was speaking to this woman, the Holy Spirit was at work on her heart. You know, beginning to open her eyes to the truth of who Jesus was. And, and somehow she had picked up that a Messiah was coming or the Messiah was coming and Jesus just simply says, I who speak to you am he. What a revelation. What a revelation. Her eyes were open to the truth as she opens her heart to him. It's kind of a contrast to Nicodemus's response. It's interesting, isn't it? An upright religious teacher had a real hard time in accepting the truth. In fact, Jesus said to him, look, you're the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things. Yet this Samaritan woman, this outcast, believes. You know, he doesn't minimize her sin, but he doesn't dwell on it either. He doesn't dwell on it because he's not looking for respectability. He's, he's looking for honesty and humility and hunger. I think those three H's, you know, are, are key in God being able to transform a heart. You need to be honest about your situation. She was totally honest. She didn't try and pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. And she was humble enough to admit that she was hungry and thirsty enough to want what Jesus had to offer. And as a result of her testimony, we read in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. What a simple testimony. Come and meet the man who told me everything I know. Now, come and meet him. Let me show him to you. As Rob mentioned last week, I think it was, our testimonies are powerful. As a result of her simple testimony, the whole village pretty much said, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. What a revelation. Not just a wise religious teacher, not just even the Messiah come to save the Jews, but the savior of the world. Why? Because they were Samaritan outcasts. They were out of this big or the small picture of God in the Jewish religion. Suddenly, they got it. God is Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. 
You know, she was a Christian for just, I don't know, a few minutes. And yet she led pretty much her entire village to Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Never underestimate the power of your testimony. It's your story of what Jesus has done in your life. I was at a leadership conference. I'll finish with this. I was at a leadership conference um, a few years ago now. And uh, at the time of his arrest, uh, basically, the, the, he was this, the UK's most dangerous criminal. It's called Shane Taylor. If you could put his picture up, there he is. At one time, the UK's most wanted and dangerous criminal. And he gave his testimony at this conference to Nicky Gumbel. And basically, it was quite a usual story. He said in his own words that he uh, grew up with the wrong type of people, started nicking cars and pushing drugs. It got worse and worse. Um, he had an uncle that he idolized, that, the, that everyone respected, basically because they feared him. And he saw that uncle, he said, he was a god to me. Nobody would mess with his uncle because he would mess with them. And he wanted that. That was his model. That was his god. And so his crimes got more and more serious in the end. He went on the run for kidnapping and finally got caught, arrested, thrown into maximum security prison. Um, He said he was just so full of hatred and anger and he gave his life committed himself to an all-out war against the system. While he was in, he managed to stab, I don't know how many, prison wardens. He was ended up put in this maximum security area where there was no physical contact. When his food came, it was through a small hatch. Anytime the door was opened, there had to be five security guards in full riot gear. That was his life for years, for years. Feared. Anyway. Christian minister comes to the prison, says, you know what? Jesus loves you. He thought he was a complete crackpot. thought you nutcase, nutcase. Dismissed it. Then he started having dreams and visions of the guy who visited him. And he said they were bugging me because they wouldn't go away. And in these, this, this vision, he called it a vision, he just said, I, I knew I had to write him a letter. So he did, just to stop these annoying visions. So he wrote this guy a letter, and the guy responded saying, look, God's on your case. Just give him your heart. Didn't do it. Thought, don't know what this guy's on. Anyway, an alpha course was starting at the prison. And word got round that they offer free chocolate biscuits. So um, that's the only reason he went for the chocolate biscuits. He sat through a few sessions. He was there to have the chocolate biscuits, but also argue that science totally disproves religion and you're all crackpots and, you know, leave me alone, give me another biscuit. But somebody pointed out and said, can you come back later? I'd like to pray for you. And something in his heart said yes. He didn't know why. As This guy was praying for him. He simply said to God, God, I hate who I am. I hate who I've become. See, there was that honesty there. The first time he was being honest, like the woman at the well. No pretense. He simply said, you know, help me. Help me. 
And as he was being prayed for, he said he started to feel something welling up in his stomach. He didn't know what it was, never experienced it before. It was getting higher and higher and higher. And then when it reached his mouth, he just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed as the Holy Spirit was bringing healing and letting all that anger and all that pain and all that rejection and bitterness out. He sobbed uncontrollably. And he said it was instant. Overnight, he was transformed. In fact, he rushed out of that meeting like this. And all the guards with their riot gear were like, okay, here he comes, here he comes, get ready. He just wanted to hug them. And they, they were just like, oh, what? this is a complete nutcase. And he said, I cannot stop preaching. I cannot stop telling people about Jesus. He ended up signing up for the chaplaincy work. He ended up getting released. He's now married. He has three kids. His life is transformed. He now goes in and speaks to youth groups and prisons and all sorts of stuff, just telling his story of what Jesus has done. God broke into my life. As he opened up his heart to God, God poured his spirit, this living water, into his heart. And for the first time, he felt loved and accepted and clean. And this joy broke out. He's just full of joy. Maybe that's your testimony too. I don't know. All our stories are a bit different. But it's just as Isaiah prophesied. When he said, when he was prophesying about Jesus coming in Isaiah 12, he says, In that day you will say, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. God had put a new song in his heart. He has become my salvation. And then he goes on to say, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This wonderful living water. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that invitation to come and drink from the well that will satisfy is open to you this morning. Don't pass up that offer. We'd love to pray with you. Do make yourself known as we draw the meeting to a close. That invitation. Maybe you've spent your life looking for things to satisfy you. And that's your testimony. Nothing really satisfies. God's offering you this morning the one thing that will, his life-giving spirit, if you come to him. Secondly, I think if you are a Christian, perhaps the challenge is twofold. Firstly, if you're a Christian here, are you still drawing from the source of living water or have you been tempted to perhaps dig your own wells and find satisfaction and find some sort of completeness in other things? God's saying to us again, only I can satisfy. Come back to the source of life itself. And secondly, if you're a Christian this morning, the challenge for us is that we have what the world is looking for, and yet they don't know it yet. And it takes us, I'm cracking up, outside. it takes us to cross these cultural and social divides and to put aside our own judgmental attitudes. You know, I can be so judgmental. 
can write people off at a, at a glance. I need God to continue to do a work in my heart, to continue to cross social divides, to put aside our own agendas and our own judgmental attitudes, and to reach out with God's grace and truth like Jesus did to that Samaritan woman. And lead them to this source of living water that we have discovered ourselves. You know, that way, who knows, we might change a life. We might even change a whole community. And I believe we will as we're prepared to cross those divides. If the musicians could come back, can I ask if you're able, would you like to stand?